catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Spectator Australia magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today at spectator.com.au forward slash join. In last week's episode, I chatted to firebrand conservative commentator Sydney Watson, whose funny and fearless culture war observations have made her a YouTube sensation the world over. It quickly became apparent that both of us had an aversion to brevity. So this is part two of Australiana in conversation with Sydney Watson. We pick up the story discussing Sydney's now infamous appearance at a vice panel event on modern feminism. Welcome back to our discussion with Sydney Watson. Sydney, we're going to start with the topic of feminism and women's rights, and indeed a term which I've only ever heard from you actually of anti-feminism. But first, to set the scene for us, talk to us about your recent and notorious debate, which was produced and coordinated by Vice. Yes. So, well, I guess I'm still here, but thanks for continuing on with this. <laughs> the the dreaded Vice panel. For anyone who has who's not watched it, I recommend doing so. They ended up turning off the comments, which is a bit of a bummer because you know everybody loves to have a have their say in the comments. But more or less, I got I got flown out to New York to do a panel about feminism with Vice, and I think there were what eight or nine of us in the room. I can't remember eight or nine. Look about um, that. Yeah, and there were they always try to do this thing for some reason where they they try to they say that they're trying to split it between people who are you know more on the right wing, people who are more on the left wing, but inevitably it ends up being like one or two conservatives versus or one or two people on the right versus the rest of the room, which is always really annoying. And so this case, I feel like, was really no different to that. There was me, there was two other girls who really didn't get any sort of considerable speaking time, who were also more or less somewhere on the right uh, and it was just really sort of a struggle session for for the three of us the panel was more or less a a total I don't want to swear in your podcast world because I don't want to be rude but a SHIT show <laughs> and it really just evolved into us getting asked prompts and questions and then the lefties answering saying kind of crazy things us trying to push back on it just with like basic common sense and then them getting very cross and very angry what i found frustrating about this and i've done several panels about feminism and whatnot over the years and this was the first time that i'd ever been exposed to one where everything was about intersectional feminism. And for people who aren't familiar with that, intersectional feminism basically breaks down the female experience predicated on not just your sex, which is what f- 
feminism should be about, but rather, you know, if you're black or white or Asian or brown, like what color your skin is, you know, if you are disabled or not disabled, if you are neurodivergent or not neurodivergent, there are all these things that they used to break down the experience. So and basically so rather feminism than, becomes a hierarchy with white yes. women at the bottom. Yes, precisely. There's this whole thing where they're very mad at, at the at the white feminist because, you know, it doesn't leave room for blah, 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 blah. And it's just, it's annoying. I'm not even a feminist and I listen to this stuff and I'm like, this is exhausting. It's just so exhausting. So I guess the panel went viral because it was just such a mess. It was just, it was just a complete mess. And watching it back, I couldn't help but think that even though I feel they cut so much of what we'd said, and and of course they would have to because there was what six hours of footage or something like that, or we filmed for probably for you know six to eight hours. So I understand, and they tried to distill it into about an hour long of discussion. But it was so interesting watching it back because you know again for people who've not seen it, there were two trans people on the panel, so biological men who, and this might upset some people, but I don't think should be participating in conversations about women anyway, because unless to me you're a biological female, I just simply don't understand how you could understand what our lived experience is like, because you're just not one of us. There's just some fundamental things there that you just don't have. And so can you participate in a conversation about the broader issues concerning women, maybe to some extent? Can you can you talk about pregnancy or motherhood or anything like that? No. And I'm not really sure why we keep, keep including these people in on conversations about those type of things. But yeah, it just evolved. It was a, it was a laugh. Like, don't get me wrong. I had a great time. Uh, I got screamed at. It was awesome. Uh, that clip went viral. I was like, hell yeah. But, you know, I walked away from it and I thought we have devolved so much. This is a mess. It was the tone of the debate, which I found most shocking because I heard you talk about it previously and you said you'd seen previous vice debates where again they were very left-leaning but the token right-wing person was at least treated with some respect and they were allowed to to be heard in this one whenever you spoke it was people either laughing at you or, or shouting you down what do you think that says about the way that we communicate with each other in this day and age well, I think in at least in that respect, and I'm glad that you noticed that because sometimes you feel crazy when you watch these things back after you've done it to be like, was that as am I am I losing it or am I really being kind of subtly disrespected here? Not even subtly, it, it's just it's very on the nose. Um, so thanks for saying that and pointing that out. But you know, part of this, I think, and I think this speaks not just the vice debate, but a broader the broader conversation is that there's a lot of people out there who've never had their ideas questioned. Mm -hmm. And so it's very interesting when you get these people and you sit down with them and you say, hey, I, yeah, okay, you, you said your piece on that. That's really interesting. Like, tell me, tell me more about that. Tell me why. Or what is, what's that statistic that you're citing? I'm not sure that that's accurate. And, and you pull apart what they have to say. They cannot handle it. Because in a real world setting, a lot of these, and again, I, I, I consider it to be more so like academic flim flam because it just it doesn't really exist in the real world. The academic flim flam that they just, you know, vomit into your face when they talk to you, there's really no basis in real life for it. And they've kind of just created, like you said before, like this kind of victimhood hierarchy that they are obsessed with. And if they're not participating in the victimhood hierarchy, well, they, they have really have nothing to talk about. And so you can't really have an intelligent conversation with people when the basis of everything that they're saying is, well, as a fill in the blank, my life is so hard because of fill in the blank. I mean, how can you talk to people like this? And, and I think this speaks to like a higher, I, I guess, like a, a broader conversation about victimhood and how everybody wants to be a victim today. And it, it just kind of kills, it kills discussion. 
Well, you've also said that that mentality is one of the reasons why feminism is dying in your view. What do you mean by that? So intersectional feminism is to me killing everything off because the kind of feminism that I support and would support is the earlier waves. So I think the the right to vote for women, uh, the right for women to buy property, own property, be in the workforce, all these type of things, I support Quality all under those. the law. Precisely. I support that. I have some questionable... I have some thoughts about the questionableness of the sexual revolution because I think that's brought us some things that I'm not certain how I feel about them. Uh, and feminists and I often get into fights about that. But, you know, a lot of the second wave, I can get behind some of it, but other bits, not so much. So Where people who aren't, up, who aren't on top of their feminist history, second wave, are we talking Jermaine Greer sort of generation? Yeah, like the the whole oh, pregnancy is uh, is is this abomination that you should never participate in because it's going to you know ruin your life and and a baby is a hindrance and you know free sex, free love for all, like everyone sleep around. I think that these are things that have had a net negative in society. I used to be very pro like birth control. I mean, I'm still pro birth control. Obviously, if you don't want to have you know offspring, I support your right to take measures to not get pregnant uh, if you want to take the pill or whatever. But in recent years, I, you know, I've looked into the pill a lot and I'm like, this is not good. We're, we're, we're getting women to change their physiology. We're getting women to mess with their hormones and whatnot. And for what? Uh, so I have a lot of very complicated feelings about a lot of the second wave sexual elements, but there's things that But it's came interesting. Out of- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's interesting that the way that you describe that in always illuminating around a broader difference between the left and the right. So you've just described a lack of comfort with something like the pill and, and some of the things that's doing, mm-hmm. but you're not suggesting to ban it. And this is a big mindset distinction between members of the, of the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they they really, they're kind of weird, actually, because they either want to ban everything. There's this whole faction, they're so funny, there's this whole faction of feminists that are like, makeup is a tool of the patriarchy, you can't, don't put it on your face, you're, you're a tool of the patriarchy, they hate high heels, I don't get it, it's very confusing. But their whole thing is like, you know, if you're participating in this, you are not, you're not one of us, you can't be one of us. Whereas my thing is like, if you're going to make decisions, I'm very libertarian like this, if you want to make decisions... Just go into it knowing precisely what you're deciding or having all the information. So yeah, do I support people sleeping around and doing all these sorts of things? I don't really. I don't think it's very healthy for anybody, especially women. I don't think it benefits women. I think overall it's a net negative for women and we've been conditioned to think that all this free sex and sleeping around is actually, you know, it's so great. But in reality, I think it has some really negative consequences on women. And and again, we've been taught to think or conditioned to think that maybe the way we feel about that, oh, just shake it off. No, it's fine. It's not, there's nothing wrong with that. And internally, these women are screaming, knowing that it's wrong, knowing they don't want to do it. And they continue doing it anyway, because, you know, they've been taught to think that it's fine. And again, no shade to the people who want to live like that. I mean, that's their choice. I'm all about choice. So I can't even remember the question now, Will. I'm like, <laughs> now I'm now I'm thinking about how the birth control pill is like not great for you and all these other things. Oh my goodness. My head is now at a, a comment that another panelist made about you at the time, which is that you are a, let me get this right, you are a beneficiary of pretty privilege, which was a, <laughs> a form of privilege that I hadn't heard before. If I was told that, I'd probably take it as a compliment. Yeah. But more seriously, do you think that the privileges, white privilege, male privilege, pretty privilege in your case. Do, the, do these exist? That, once again, great question. I feel like that's just going to keep coming out, of, coming out of my mouth. This is great publicity <laughs> for the podcast. Please keep going. <laughs> I think that to the extent that being attractive 
gets you further in life in some respects, yes, maybe that's a privilege, but also I don't think that that's necessarily a precursor to anything. You can be pretty in a complete butthead and everybody hates you. And so really what doors does being attractive open? So the privilege thing is is a weird one because I think what they what people have done is they've they've taken this word that well, they've taken this word and inappropriately used it to describe things that people can achieve in life, in society, or the the image that people have of other people in society, and then said, you have it better than everybody else, and you don't have it quite as, as hard. Men, for example, and I think that this is where I think a lot of feminists start to lose me. Men have unique problems. Men have unique problems that women don't have. Men will still have those problems, regardless if they have privilege or no privilege. And it's same with women. Women have unique problems. Women have problems that men will never have. And they will still have those things, regardless if they're female, or sorry, regardless if they have privilege or not. So it's just, it's such a weird way of conceptualizing the world to say your life is less challenging because you're born like this or have this skin color, this, that, and the other, because ultimately I'm a big proponent of people just having self-accountability, taking responsibility for their actions, and also not getting bogged down in these bizarre victimhood categories that we seem to love so much. Because privilege really denotes that somebody else doesn't have privilege and that they're worse off than you because they lack that privilege and they have no control over that. And therefore, we should give them more opportunities and move towards equity, as the left love to say, in order to balance things out. And look, the, the fact that some people are luckier and some people are more unlucky, the fact that some people are naturally smarter and uh, some people are less smart, this is just the way of the world. What yeah. I don't understand about this conversation is how arbitrary particular privileges are, are chosen. So mm-hmm. you can't tell me that a black person who was educated in the Ivy League is mm-hmm. less privileged than a white person who grew up in the Appalachian Mountains with drug addict parents. You can't tell me that a woman who had a billionaire father or mother is somehow less privileged than a man whose parents were on the breadline. I don't understand why it's the arbitrary nature of it that I really struggle with. Yeah, no, I agree with that too because – Well, here in America, especially because they are so obsessed with all this type of stuff. And again, you'll have to tell me if this stuff has made its way to Australia, because when I left, it really, it was sort of starting to happen, but it wasn't really all that commonplace. But yeah, I mean, definitely here in in the States, I mean, it's just, it's so odd. It's just so weird. I think about this all the time, especially in relation to the race thing, because people will make the claim, no joke, that you can have the brilliant, handsome, attractive black guy who gets into the Ivy League and then becomes a lawyer and he's smashing it and he's killing it, that he's still subjected to all of these additional hardships and bits and pieces just by virtue of the fact that he happens to be black. Or you know, his life is more challenging because he happens to be black, even though he's achieved and he's done all these amazing things. And him compared to, like you said, the, the guy from the Appalachian Hills who grew up in the middle of nowhere and he's got, he's got no money to his name and he struggled every day of his life and mum and dad you know, they had drug problems and he never really could quite get his his life together and everything was so hard for him. They'll say, no, he still has inherent privilege. He's still, you know, basically higher up on, you know, in the socioeconomic world somehow than the guy who's actually doing well but happens to be black. I don't get that. It's bizarre, but they love this though. And this is how they think that you can't be racist towards white people and all these sort of things. It's just, but again, all of that's coming out of academia. That's the central point of it. 
Let's dive into the conversations around race in more depth. So to your question around how is what's the distinction between Australia and the US and the conversation of race, it certainly yeah. isn't as toxic. <laughs> but there's one consistent thread that I see across both countries, and that is a focus on symbolic gestures as opposed mm. to dealing with pragmatic solutions to problems. The best example that I can see in Australia at the moment is the debate around the voice where we'll be having oh. a referendum later this year. The fact that we're going to be spending now a whole year and spending a lot of money on a largely symbolic layer of bureaucracy as opposed mm -hmm. to thinking about how do we deal with the systemic, serious and like immediate problems in areas like Alice Springs to me is so telling. It was the same mm -hmm. conversation when, when Kevin Rudd apologised to the stolen generation, which made everyone that. feel good, but there's been no substantive improvements in Indigenous quality of life over the last 15 years as a result of that apology. What do you put down in both the US and Australia? What do you put down mm. this obsession with race symbolism over actual pragmatic solutions? Well, it's like you said, right? It feels good to do these things. They're Band-Aid answers to, like you said, kind of deeply ingrained social problems that we would actually have to have honest conversations about what's going on, I think, in order to ameliorate them. It's kind of like, who was the lady um, some years ago, uh, the blonde lady? She, I think she's blonde. She made a comment about how children in the Northern Territory have, I believe, higher rates of, say, um, STDs and whatnot because they're sexually abused at a much higher rate in Aboriginal communities than in, say, the rest of Australia, mm -hmm. in the whole of the rest of Australia. Mm -hmm. People got so angry and they were like, you're a racist and you're this. And she, I, I don't know if you're familiar with who I'm talking about, but, and I can't remember her name, but this, this went everywhere. And she said this on a national TV show and it, it went everywhere. It might've been like, good morning, something or other. Yeah, I've Dude, heard now the, I'm like, the fact is that this I'm is like a data meshing. point. It's right. very easily verifiable. But people cannot have those conversations because it's uncomfortable and it's yucky and everything has to come then, once again, back to race. And, and so people make it all about, oh, you're being a racist because you're even bringing this up. And I think about this all the time, particularly in the United States. So there is a problem within the black community with fatherlessness, uh, with gangs, drug problems. These are like, once again, like you said, it's you, these are data points. You can look at this. You can see these things. They're, they're, they're observable. I think it's a net positive to fix these things because plenty of my friends who happen to be black are just really awesome people who contribute to society. They're good people, yada, yada, yada. Their skin color doesn't make a difference to whether or not they're good or bad or anything. They're just people. They just happen to be black. I always think it's so weird when people make these arguments that we're not allowed to have these conversations about these very obvious problems because they pertain to a particular race of people when it's a net positive to fix those problems. I mean, if you have an entire group of people, let's say everyone's freaking orange and you have a group of people who are green and the green group of people don't, they don't contribute to society. They're, they're, there's a higher instance of say them being on the dole or something like that. And you come in and you go, okay, what's causing this? Oh, it's because of this, this, and let's let's fix those problems. You fix those problems. Now you've got more taxpayers. Now you've got more people who are contributing to society. Now you have a stronger economy, yada, 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 the list goes on. How are those not things worth chasing? I don't get it. To be held back by, by the insistence that everything is racist, to me, is just, it's so one-dimensional and it really goes to show that people actually are not interested in fixing problems they're just interested in making themselves feel better or to appear like they're doing something this is the same thing with here in the us and i don't know if you've heard this but 
there's plenty of people in all these states who want to give reparations to once again black Americans. Yes. In places the conversation where is, is again not as not as big as in Australia, but the conversation is, is nibbling away with Indigenous Australians. Or where they want to give reparations. Yeah. But how does? But again, like, how does? I just don't understand, like, how that how that's like a serious thing, especially particularly in states like California, where they didn't have slavery. So you're going to pay a bunch of people who weren't slaves who in a state where they didn't have slavery reparations from people who didn't participate in slavery. It's just yes. confusing. I don't know. Maybe I'm like out on a different like page with this, but. No, you're, you're not. And I saw a really good tweet about this the other day where someone shared a skit from Chappelle's show around the year 2000, where he was taking the piss out of reparations. And the skit was basically a lot of black people in really rich neighborhoods, just throwing money around going, <laughs> yeah. you little beauty. I think what yeah. the American equivalent of you little beauty is. The government's giving us free money for something which happened to people 200 years ago. So it's interesting how it's gone from being something which someone like a black comedian like Chappelle would laugh at how silly it was 20 years ago to mm -hmm. now being even a serious conversation. Yeah, you said that this was one-dimensional. I, I would go further. It's, it's, it is moral cowardice and it is something which you can see in Indigenous Australia. It's something which we can see in, in black communities in the US. But I think the best mm -hmm. example, and if there's something I can recommend to listeners to do some research on because it's so shamefully underreported, is mm -hmm. the grooming gangs scandal oh, yeah. in the United Kingdom. Now, for people mm -hmm. who don't know, for the last 20, 30 years, there mm -hmm. has been systemic and widespread problems associated with largely Pakistani immigrants of the Muslim religion who have used cultural norms as an excuse for raping underage girls. And the numbers, which I don't have at hand, but the numbers behind this are so shocking. And yet, mm -hmm. still to this day, despite one or two very brave people and brave journalists in the UK, this isn't discussed. And 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 even worse, it's not prosecuted because people are so worried about offending sensibilities mm -hmm. when it comes to Islam and when it comes to ethnic minorities like the Pakistani ethnic minority. This is one of those ones where it goes beyond being a funny quirk of the world that we live in today to being genuinely tragic and infuriating. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent right. the the Rotherham uh, the Rotherham rape gangs are grooming gangs. Yeah, uh, that, that's one of the big ones. There was another um, massive drop of information recently pertaining to another city, but I can't remember which one it was. But yeah, you, we're talking about like thousands of young girls being groomed, being raped. And the sad thing is that, and and for people again who aren't familiar, uh, the sad thing is that when people tried to say something, when the parents of these children tried to say something, when the children themselves tried to say something, the police were either A, dismissive because they were like, nope, don't want to know that, don't want anything to do with it, la la la, we can't hear you. Or they felt that their hands were tied and they couldn't do anything because like you rightly said, Will, they were so concerned about coming off as racist that they just did nothing. And so for years and years and years and years and years and years, these young women and girls were treated just like abhorrently and no one would do anything. And so I think we see actually a little bit of that in Australia, to be honest with you. People don't like that. It's really, I don't know if you can uh, tell me why this is, because maybe, maybe this is the American in me that doesn't understand, but when you criticize America to Americans and it's like a fair criticism, they're like, that's so true. We hate that too. Yeah, we should stop doing that. When you criticize things about Australia, Aussies always get so irate. And I'm like, guys, 
I'm not criticizing you. I'm one of you. I'm from your country. Why are you getting so mad about this rightful thing that someone's pointing out that kind of sucks about our country? Why are you getting so mad? It's just, it's so weird to me because if it, when I, whenever I've talked about particularly this in Australia, because there's so many cases of this where women have said, oh, I got raped or sexually assaulted by this man who's a Muslim or who's whatever. Um, the cops will be like, oh, it's a cultural difference thing. That happened to me. I, I went through the exact same thing. Oh, it's a cultural difference thing. But you call that out and you say, hey, Aussies, this is what's going on in your own backyard. And they're like, no. And they get really mad. I don't get it. I don't get I've, it. I've lived in the US as, as well. I don't quite see the distinction that way. I see the distinction more from the left and the right. And I actually think they're relatively similar in the US and Australia, where the left mm -hmm. is very comfortable shaming their country. The right almost on the other extreme is content to look away sometimes at the problems yeah. in their particular cultures. I see it as a problem of ideology as opposed to to a problem of, of one country or, or another. It's certainly a problem which has got a lot worse in the last 20 years as, as both countries have become more polarised. Yeah, I was, yeah. I mean, maybe that's it more than anything. I just find this a lot and I get, I get so disappointed because I think guys, like I'm on your team. <laughs> like, I don't want to see Australia go down this road and do all these bits and pieces. But I, I often, I often get the response that's like, oh, well, you're just too Americanized now. And I think, no, I mean, yeah, probably. But, <laughs> but also, you know, I, I think that there's some like legitimate things, some legitimate criticisms of Australia that kind of get swept under the rug because they're uncomfortable. They're like uncomfortable to, uh, to participate in and articulate and I don't know maybe that's sort of been a, well um I'm trying to think of actual like examples now for you because this happened this happened oh with all the COVID stuff this is a great one um anytime I'd say anything with the COVID stuff like hey guys I don't think it's appropriate that you're like physically not allowed to go to work unless you're vaccinated I'm I was very disappointed to see that a lot of Aussies were like, oh, you know, well, it's just whatever. Like, don't don't say any of this type of stuff about Australia. They like to kind of safeguard some of the um, government control that I think we, we get really used to in Australia. It's kind of funny because now that I've lived in the US for almost four years, I kind of miss some of the regulation that we have back home, which is so psycho to say, but it's just minor things that I go, oh, that's hyper-regulated in Australia, which means that I know that's probably safer, like food. You're right. If you look at Australia now, it is a highly regulated, soft authoritarian society yeah. in some instances. But the interesting thing for me is that's not how I think a lot of Australians think of it. I think a lot of Australians still think of the stereotypes. They think of relaxed, laid back, Aussie mm -hmm. larrikin, irreverent, suspicious of authority, you know, Paul Hogan, Breaker Morant, cultural stereotypes. And in mm. our mind, we still think of Australia that way, the no worries view of Australia. But then you look at the way that Australia is actually moving forward with COVID, the number one example. Mm. This is a very, very authoritarian at this stage, maybe a word with too many connotations around it. Mm. But the nanny state element of Australia is undeniable. And yeah. yet I just think that too many of us either don't see it or don't want to see that this is, is very different to what it was even 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that could explain some of the responses that I get to particular things that I have to say about Australia. Because God, man. Dissonance. Yeah, yeah. I think that's maybe, I think what you're saying is probably part of it. It's sort of like when you're forced to reckon with what's actually going on, you're like, I don't want to see that. Get that away from me. Uh, and we all do that. I mean, it's very comfy to not have to engage with things that make you uncomfortable. <laughs> but I just noticed this too, because I think Daily Mail and uh, news.com today love me because every time <laughs> I do anything or say anything about Australia, there's another article being like, radical right-wing far-right Sydney Watson says that Australia Day must be celebrated. And if you don't like it, stay home. 
And I'm like, am I am I wrong? I don't know. I'm confused. Why are you writing angry articles about me? No, I think they would be very supported by the Daily Mail readership. <laughs> yeah, Daily Mail's all right. News.com.au, I'm like, just ask me. Like, just reach out to me and ask me and I'll tell you. You don't have to guess. Whereas Daily Mail's always cool. They always, they always write really funny articles about me and I think, ah. Daily Mail. Are we friends? (laughs) (laughs) We've covered some heavier topics. Race, the trans issue. I know you're you're burning through all the big ones, all the big no-nos. Let's let's finish on something a bit lighter, and that is woke celebrities, because I know that this is a, a particular little hobby horse of yours. Why do you think there is such a homogenous worldview in Hollywood, and do you think they actually matter? Do I think celebrities matter? Do you think the the fact that celebrities push a particular agenda makes a Mm. difference to the wider society? Yes, I do. Oh, God, man, I hate celebrities. I find them so annoying. There's like like two of them that I respect. And uh, it's so so funny. Um, I was watching a film last night called Don't Look Up, and I don't like Jennifer Lawrence at all. And everyone in the film was so annoying that I was like, oh, my God, this is making me like Jennifer Lawrence. Who would have thought? What is going on? (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's such a funny one because I'm kind of on the fence with this. I, I feel like you and I are probably on the same wavelength when it comes to this stuff. On one hand, I don't think Rihanna doing the Super Bowl performance, just for example, was something worth complaining about. I was like, yep, cool. Everyone who's dressed around her in their little white outfits, people should go and watch the clip because what I'm about to say is going to sound really gross and apologies in advance. But all of her dancers looked like they were dressed up as sperm. And I found that visually a little assaulting to the eyes. But I was like, whatever, like, this is fine. They can do what they want to do. This is not worth complaining about. I don't know why conservatives in the United States are, are moaning. On the other hand, then you look at Sam Smith in his, did you see his little sausage outfit where he's like all wrapped up in did I did that? yes the, 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 <laughs> I look at the, that yeah yeah the, his like bondage stuff I look at that and I'm like this I was hate the you. Grammys performance with it which a lot of <laughs> of the conservatives said in the U.S. have said was kind of Satan Satan worship yeah demonic which I guess it was he was literally dressed as the devil I mean sure but these there's there's like a distinction there right like Rihanna dancing it's whatever to me doesn't make a difference. People just really like her music. Sam Smith and some of these other people, I do think that they have a cultural impact. I do think that there is a net effect of what they're doing. I don't like it. And I think that people underestimate how impactful culture is. And this is why I have moved even my own content creation and the things I talk about into the cultural space, because that's where people are more interested. Politics is great. Politics is fun. Fine, fine, fine. Politics makes a difference when it comes to what the federal government is doing or the state government. You can learn, yada, yada, yada. However, people care about the shows that they're watching. People care about the video games they're watching. They love Sam Smith's music. They love Rihanna's music. They love all these things. And so they have a vested interest in what those people are doing. It's not just a casual interest. Test this out with people that you know in your life. Pick someone that they really love and say, that person died. Freak them out. They'll, They'll be like, oh my God, what? They care about the life and death of people they don't even know. Celebrities they don't even know. There's like a parasocial investment in these people. And I think that really does have such a bizarro consequence, particularly on young people once again. Well, you heard that that, uh, that actress only died this morning. What's uh, Reese? Reese? Reese someone? Don't say Reese Witherspoon. Oh, no, it was with a knife. <laughs> Straight into that one. You got me so good. <laughs> yes, I haven't used that in since I was about 15 and I'm so oh happy that it God. worked. 
I, well, I, I walked straight into that. See, I, did I, you I, see? I was like, don't tell me it's Reese Witherspoon, that blonde lady from Alabama that I know nothing about. Come well, on. Well, look, if we have any listeners still listening after that, I have one more question for you. And it's, sure. I guess, tying together a lot of what we've spoken about. As I said in our last episode, I speak to so many people who just feel helpless. What is your advice, you know, dealing with for, for people who are trying to navigate this crazy woke world of 2023? What is your advice to them? Oh, man, that's once again, big, big question. I just, I guess one of my things that I'm realizing even for myself is that having a really strong unit of people around you really helps with feeling that, with that isolation and that sort of, I guess, I don't know the correct terminology, but you feel kind of separated from society because you don't think anybody thinks like you. Finding a community of like-minded people, whether it's online or whether it's in real life, I think is so important because you're not crazy. And that's the thing is that we're we're almost made to feel 100% of the time like we're insane for just having these really common sense opinions. And when you find other people who share your opinions and your views, you know, they don't have to share all of them, but just, you know, even a, a large portion of them will make you feel a lot better. I would say that we're in such an odd period of time and I'm right along there with people feeling it and just being like, f- things feel really negative at the moment. And so I think that And this is just what I say to people all the time on the internet, like go outside and touch some grass a little bit, because I think we're all so invested that I think sometimes we forget to just turn off and switch off. And as far as once again, like I said before, getting involved, I really believe that if you really seriously consider and care about what's going on around you, I can't stress enough how much getting involved in your local community and making change, it's that's so important. Just being involved in that capacity, if you're willing to do it, that will make you feel a lot better. But yeah, communities are a big one turning off, getting away from the internet and all that type of stuff, really big one. And then actually making measurable change in your communities and whatnot, really big one. I don't know if that's helpful to other people, but that helps me a lot. I personally really like it. I I think get involved and go outside and touch the grass are two lovely sentiments to end on. (laughs) Anyone who's listened to this will agree that, Sydney, you are essential listening or viewing for anyone with an interest in the broader culture wars and cultural issues that we are facing. Please keep doing what you are doing because I think on the the right, there is a lack of really intelligent, charismatic voices on, on these sorts of issues. And you are certainly one of them. We'll put your YouTube handle, I guess it's called, and Twitter and all the different ways you can connect on social media in the show notes. Sydney, thank you so much for joining us on Australiana. Thank you for having me and thank you for that very, very lovely outro there. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and a review.